Please stand for the reading of God's word. John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. We're in the fourth of four weeks on this idea of abiding in Christ in John 15. What we're seeing is that Jesus' intention is for his life to come to flow in and flow through his people as we exist in a dependent relationship of trust with him. And he's communicating that to us with this rich metaphor of a vine and branches. It's a picture of a a Middle Eastern grapevine. The the vine was the the large central part of the plant that brought nourishment and life to the branches, which were smaller, and off the branches uh, grew the fruit of grapes. So he's using this picture of a vine and branches. So we see this something like this in John 15. I am the true vine. Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. There are other vines. I'm the true vine, the true source of life for which you've been made. Therefore, abide in me. Abide, stay, remain. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that your joy, my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So Jesus, the only command in this whole chapter, by the way, is the word abide. Abide. Now last week as Taylor was preaching, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, you know, love one another. He's referring to that. But he actually doesn't command them to love one another. Though I think we probably should. Uh, the command here is abide. Remain. Stay. Abide in me. Abide in my love. May my words abide in you. Abide, abide, abide. Remain, stay. And my intention here, Jesus says, is one, I I love to take joy in you, but I want your joy to be full. Because abiding in me brings you back into the life you were originally created for. And you begin to taste that. Not fully, but substantially and really. Because we're still living in a broken world. We're broken people wrestling with sin. And yet, abiding in Christ brings us back into that life where we begin to recapture the image of God where we begin to to get the life back we were made for, the life Jesus died to give us. And then he put it in a context, as we saw last week, these things, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. This This is a communal effort. We're trying to abide in Jesus 
together. Okay, so it's very encouraging. It's like, oh, this life is flowing in us. We're doing this together. Great. And then what Jesus says here seems to take like a, an abrupt left turn. What, what Zoe just read. Like, if the world hates you, and you think, well, where did that come from? Why, why is he all of a sudden jumping into this if the world hates you stuff? And here's the reason. Abiding in Jesus has a profound implication for the reality in which you live. Abiding in Jesus, if you're abiding in Christ by faith, by faith you've been, as the Apostle Paul says, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That has profound implications for our life in this world. I'm, trying to, I'm using a political illustration, which is always dangerous, but I think I got back far enough that almost that nobody would remember it, right? Uh, November 8th, 1932. Okay. Uh, the Great Depression's going on. Herbert Hoover's president. It's not going well for him. Uh, he gets beat in a landslide in the, in the national election by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR. Uh, Hoover only carried five of the current 48 states at that time. And so on November 8th, he loses the election. And uh, Roosevelt is the president-elect, but doesn't take office until March 4th, March 5th. That was inauguration back then. Now it's uh, January 20th. But so for five months, there was this time of overlap where Hoover's administration was in charge, but there was a definite end to its power. It was coming March 4th or March 5th. And there was during that overlap of five months, the uh, the Roosevelt administration was and was coming full. And there was a definite point where it would be fully in charge, but there was a time where one was and had authority but was passing away, and where one was and it was just beginning and was growing, and then there was an overlapping time. But if you were in the Hoover administration, the very fact and presence of the Roosevelt administration was a sign to you that your time was limited. Right? You were passing away. And every so it is all this transition when there's a new president. So if you're the attorney general of Herbert Hoover and you're sharing office space with this new guy who's going to be the attorney general of FDR, his very presence is a sign that your job is going away. And so you may not be that hospitable to him. So at the same time, this overlap of times in, in presidential politics in this one common space in Washington, D.C., there's a kingdom that is and is passing away, and a kingdom that is and is coming full, and the kingdom that is and is coming full is a sign that the kingdom that is passing away will certainly pass away. Why am I telling you this? When you're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, you're transferred from one kingdom to another in an overlapping time that has a definite end, unknown to us, known only to the Lord, where the kingdom of this world is and is passing away. There's a definite end to its authority. And the kingdom of the beloved Son is and is coming full. There's a definite time in the future where it comes full. We don't know where that is. God knows that. To the kingdom of this world, the very presence of the kingdom of the Son is a sign that its time is limited. If you are in Christ by faith, your very presence in this world as you abide in Jesus is a sign that the kingdom of darkness is passing away and will eventually be gone. Sometimes that's not received with a lot of hospitality from this world. Hence, Jesus saying, if the world hates you, 
So let's dig into this just a little bit. This uh, chapter, I want to warn you up front that the first two or three verses are like 80% of the sermon. So when we get done with verse 19 or 20, you're like, is it really, are we really only a fifth of the way through? Answer, no, we're almost done at that point, okay? Verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, it begins with if, a conditional, if the world hates you, not, not necessarily saying this is the way it is all the time, and Ben mentioned this at the outset. Sometimes there's sort of overlapping value structures of a particular culture and time with the kingdom of God, and it doesn't seem like there's that much tension. At other times, there's much more tension. Now, there's always tensions. There's always tension. Sometimes it just doesn't seem as much. But if it is, Jesus says, if the world hates you. What is the world? Okay. In the Gospel of John, he uses the phrase world in a couple of ways. One is just the world. I mean, just everything. So famously, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. He loved the world by giving his son. He gave his son to the inhabitants of this world that we may have life. So that's one way that this writer, the gospel writer John, uses world, captures Jesus using it this way. But the other way is sort of the the mosaic of overlapping value structures that operate apart from God in this world. On the front of your main worship booklet, to take that out, is it says pre-service reflection. I don't know if anybody ever reads this. Occasionally, people will get here before service starts, and, um, and then they look at these things. So we put these in here because a lot of people take their worship book home too. Taylor and I actually give thought to what goes on this front page. It's not just a list where we're populating for somewhere on the Internet. We think about this sort of thing. And I want to point out the middle paragraph of this from a theologian philosopher named David Wells and his book, God in the Wasteland, where he's describing worldliness He says, worldliness, and this is the italicized portion, worldliness is that system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations in any given culture that have at their center the fallen human being and that relegate to their periphery or to the outside any thought about God. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness seem odd. Now, it changes from age to age and culture to culture and time to time. But, but each age, each time, our time has a system of values and beliefs, behaviors and expectations that have at their center us, people, man. And push to the periphery or the outside the redemptive work of Jesus, right? And that is what makes in our culture sin look normal and righteousness look odd. Now, what it looks normal, the sinful things that look normal in our culture aren't the same things that looked, you know, the same type of sin that looked normal 150 years ago. It just changes. Why? Well, the worldly structures change. And it always, whatever, whatever sin of, of the day is, and by that we mean over a few decades, it looks normal to our time. Right now, there's all kinds of sexual sin that looks normal, that didn't look normal 150 years ago. Right? 150 years ago, there's all kinds of personal sin between races that look normal that doesn't look normal now. Right? So, like, it just changes time to time to time. But worldliness remains. 
And all Jesus is pointing out here is there's, there's two ways of being, right? There's the way that draws life from me, we're called, uh, it's called abiding in Christ, and a way of drawing life from something else. It's called worldliness. Worldliness can be religious or irreligious. If you're in, you know, that worldliness would have a lot of different phrases for it, but Jesus just calls it the world, worldliness. That which is centered in something other than the redemptive work of God in Christ. And if the world says that whole mix hates you, and I know I'm going slowly through this, the word you there is plural, not individual, but plural. If the world hates you all as a group, right? So he's, he's, what's in view here is the antipathy of the world against the work of the gospel in the world. Now, occasionally, there are Christians or people, at least in the name of Jesus, individuals who do and say really stupid things, unhelpful things, and do and say unloving things, right? And that, that create, that, what's received from that is scorn. That's true. I can't, I wish I could do something about that. I can't. Neither can you. Uh, that's not really what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the, the global antipathy to the gospel and his work in this world. And he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Previously in John 7, I put this in your insert on the right side, Jesus says to the disciples, the world actually cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the world's hating me, and guys, you, by virtue of your union with me and abiding in me, you're getting caught up in this. Sorry, it's the way it is. Right? Why does the world hate Jesus? Well, he tells us, I testify to it, about it, that its works are evil. The presence of Jesus has an implication for our world. If you're feeling ill, been feeling ill for a while, and somebody finally convinces you to go to the doctor, or you go to the doctor because you want to, they run a few tests, Send you home, call you in a couple weeks. He says, why don't you come back? Mr. Williams, come back. We, we have some test results we want to discuss with you. Go to the doctor's office. And uh, your norm, my normal family doctor doesn't walk in, but in through the door comes an oncologist. And she says, Roger, I have some bad news and some good news. Bad news is uh, you have some cancer in your body. And left untreated will be fatal. Good news is I'm a cancer doctor, and I can uh, help you solve this. <laughs> I can bring treatment. The, f- the fact of that doctor walking through the door creates a reality for me. I've got a problem, and it makes me, makes me know my problem. Now, how could I respond to that? I could say, well, I want to hear what you have to say, and I want to do what you say. I want to submit to your will and, and move in this treatment process, or I could just deny it. I could say, I could kick her out of the room. I could leave the room. I could get hostile with her. I could just, I could pretend like it, it doesn't even exist. And I wouldn't have to deal with that oncologist. Great. Also, I'm not dealing with the problem. Right? The presence of that oncologist creates a reality in my life. The presence of Jesus creates a reality in a world. When a redeemer comes to a world, there's a sign that it needs redemption. When a savior comes to a world, there's a sign like it's in trouble. And so this world, you know, there's options, right? We can respond and submit and say, I want the healing that you're bringing, or get hostile. And that's what Jesus is saying happens. 
There's some who respond and some who grow hostile. Why? Because he said to them, he's testified to them, his presence testifies that their, uh, their works are evil. And we have to remember, you know, Jesus doesn't come to help us. Right? Jesus doesn't come to be our helper. Jesus doesn't come to give us a boost. He didn't come to make me a better, like, version of myself. Like, there, there is no better version of me. Um, he doesn't come to make us authentic and true. He comes to, to Roger to say this. Roger, your deeds are evil. And you have a sickness unto death. And I want to heal you. Right? And you, and you, and whoever will respond to that, I want to heal. Now, even me saying that, looking at you saying, your deeds are evil, you might say, especially since it's a smaller crowd, like it's more personal to say that, like I feel it even right now. It was easier to say it in first service because twice as many people. But... Um, <laughs> Your deeds are evil. We feel like the inclination to push away from that. The world feels the same thing. Jesus' very presence was the declaration of the world that your deeds are evil and you are sick unto death and I am here to heal you and bring you life. And the response to that can be yes or hell no. Right? That is the, the actual response that the world gives. I will choose hell rather than the, the healing that you offer. And the, really the tip of the spear of where the conflict is, is where we are rooted. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, uh, therefore the world hates you. The, this of the world, out of the world, it's, uh, it's like rooted language. It's where, where's your life, where's the source of your life growing out of? So he set up the picture, right? Is the source of your life growing out of the vine or out of the soil of this world? If you were, if you were coming out of the world, the world wouldn't mind that. In a couple chapters in John 17, he's going to give what he calls the high priest, you know, what we call the high priestly prayer, what he prays just before he gets arrested. It's on the right side of your insert. He prays, Father, I've given them your word, these are the disciples and then those who would believe through them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may be sanctified in the truth truth. Here's the picture that Jesus is praying. Here's this world system that uh, is uh, that has got man at the center and hostile to the redemptive work of Jesus, and he envisions his people being present in it, but energized from another source. Present in the world, but not rooted in the world. So when and you hear you say, we're in the world but not of the world. What that means is we are living our life among all sorts of things, but the, our life source is not rooted in the soil of this world. It is rooted elsewhere. It is rooted in the vine that is Jesus Christ. So you, you can imagine this hostile garden environment filled with weeds, and you got this grapevine growing in it, and all this grape coming off, all these, this good fruit. That's the picture that we get. 
We get to be connected to an alternate source of life as opposed to what? Well, years later, decades later, this same apostle John is reflecting on this in 1 John. And he captures it saying it this way in 1 John 2, if you go down in your outline a little bit, on the right side. He writes this. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. That word lust there is a very specific word which means over-desires, epithumia in Greek. Thumia is desire, epi is over. Like those are desires that are too strong or become twisted because they're too strong. Often it's a, it's a, desire, for, a desire for something good that has become ultimate. The lust of the flesh is the over-desires of like the body, right? That could be like, I just could be pleasure. I'm just driven by pleasure. I want more pleasure. Or it could be like, I, I just need more security so I don't sense so much anxiety in my body or tension or whatever. Like it's trying to, it's trying to solve or satiate or satisfy the, the physical reality in some way. Now we're super creative. So John just like, here's the pathway. You all great, have uh, great permutations of how you sin on it. I'm, I'm pretty good at like fig- figuring out different ways to, sur- to sin with the lust of the flesh over desires of the flesh. But like, this is one category. This is one rootedness of this world, the lust of the flesh, the over-desires of the body. Now, we, are we made for comfort? Are we made for pleasure? Yes. The problem comes in when we take that desire and say, i got to have more. We mistake, uh, I gave this illustration last night, we had family Thanksgiving, right? And uh, we read C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, around our table. This is Price of admission to our family, I suppose. It has to happen. Um, and so we're, you know, toasting with wine. And, like, so wine is a good thing. We're, you know, it brings a sense of joy and warmth, right? It's a gift. That joy and warmth is a gift from God that comes through wine. If you think it's found in it, what happens? You need to have more and more and more. If you mistake the thing for the source, it's a problem. If you over-desire and set your, your affection on it, it becomes a twisted desire, lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes would be beauty. Like I need to have more beauty and more and more and more. And I actually want to possess the beauty instead of enjoy the beauty. It could be the boastful pride of life. That is, that is approval of other people. That is the, the praise of other people. That's the uh, avoiding shame and avoiding guilt and the, uh, the respect of your kids and your spouse and all this kind of stuff. This isn't, these aren't new sin patterns, by the way. If you look back at page 3 of the Bible, and you have the, what happens with Adam and Eve in the garden and sin, just look what happens. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, and that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that the tree was... De- to be desired to make one wise, as wise as God, boastful pride of life. She took of the fruit and ate, and gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Same thing. The, the world is not that creative. It just keeps giving the same thing, because we just keep saying, okay, give us a little bit more. Um, all right. This is, this is the context. And so Jesus isn't saying, I want you out of this context. 
This is where we're built to live. I just want you energized by a different source, energized by abiding in me. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So Jesus is saying, the hatred of the world is part of following me. Now honestly, we live in 2021 in America at the end of a long story where the gospel has shaped a lot of things. Even the the disdain of the world in our culture for the work of the gospel isn't nearly as intense as it is for the people who live in Iran where Daryl just prayed. Let's just be clear about that, right? Let's be clear. Now, there is pushback. There might be more pushback in the future. I don't know. But I think there's, in my mind, at least three sub-Christian responses to this. One is being surprised. Like, I can't believe the world, you know, is, is uh, hating the work of the gospel. And kind of, I, I think we often think, you know, if Christians were just perfectly loving and spoke perfectly clearly and were very cool, the world would just love them. Jesus was killed, right? Nobody loved better than Jesus. Nobody spoke clearer than Jesus. Nobody was more relevant than Jesus, and he was executed. So let's not be surprised. Let's not be dismayed. Like, oh, I can't believe it. Well, why not? <laughs> this is, we're told right here. And let's not be swayed by it. And let's, not try to, let's not try to ease the tension by just being caught up in it. We need just to be aware, oh, yeah, of course, we're following Jesus. We're, we're part of the kingdom that is and that is coming. We have to understand that that is an implicit threat to the kingdom that is and is passing away. This is the nature of doing, this is the nature of following Jesus. It's okay. Verse 21. Jesus says, all these things they will do on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. He just hates so often in this passage. Um, Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So it's not saying that people weren't guilty before this. There wasn't a problem. He came to solve the problem. He's saying that the generation he came to, and I suppose every subsequent generation, has no excuse whatsoever because he's made it clear. He's highlighted this. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. That's a quote from Psalm 35 and 69. But it does strike me when I read that. I had never thought about this before this week as I was thinking about this. Um, When he says, they hated me without cause, he's saying there's there's no reason. I mean, Jesus is the the oncologist who comes into the room and says, I'm here to heal you. There would be no reason for me to hate that doctor if I was in the situation needed, right? If I did that, you would say something like, if I rejected that doctor, you would say, Roger, what is wrong with you? Do you not understand the, the depth? You would, you would think, you probably wouldn't be angry at me. You might feel like pity for me or com- compassion for me. That I would reject the healing that was available to me. I wonder if it's not better, friends, when you sense the heat of the world against the work of the gospel, to think maybe my first rea- reaction ought to be compassion. Because here is a world 
rejecting the healing that's being offered to it. And now we live in a culture that, that, um, that reifies and rewards anger against these things. My suggestion is that the way of Jesus is a way of compassion for a world that keeps slapping away Jesus' hand that's extended toward it. So first response is compassion. The second response, simply this, abiding. Abiding so that our presence is a life-giving presence. Verse 26, when the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And I lament, I didn't put the next verse in there, I should have, I just cut it off too early. First, uh, chapter 16, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is saying, I know that it can be difficult. I know that it can be difficult. I know sending you into the world, into this mix of jumbled value systems is tough. I know that there's all kinds of pressure on you. I know there's all kinds of threats on you. I'm asking you to do two things. Have compassion and abide. Abide. Love your neighbors by abiding in Jesus. Love your coworkers by abiding in Jesus. Students, love your other classmates by abiding in Jesus. And as you do that, as we do that, and this is why we, um, I neglected to mention this at the beginning, we've created this thing called the New City Regula. This is just a tool to help you abide. You might have other tools that you're using. Great. If it's better, great. We're just, we want you to abide in Jesus. Why? Because we want you to have joy in Him, to recapture the life that you've been created to live, and then to be a life-giving presence in your community by just abiding in Him. And as we abide in Him, what happens? The Spirit testifies to us that Jesus is real. And then through us, testifies to our culture that he is who he says he is. Now, when we say, it says, you will be my witnesses, you will bear witness, we've got to rehab that word just a little bit. Because if you come from a Christian background and you say, I'm supposed to witness for Jesus, that typically means this, like the person, the Jehovah's Witness, like, open up, I know you're in there, you don't want to hear what I have to say, but I'm going to convince you. Or you're going to just listen to me for a little bit, Right? All witness means is to bear witness, to, to bear testimony, to abide in Christ. And as First Peter says, to be ready to give it a, a response for the hope that is in you, a reason for the hope that is in you. You bear witness. You're fueled by another source in the midst of a world that's spinning, in the midst of a world that's consumed by what other people think of them or what they think of themselves. Friends, you're free from both of those. You're energized by another source. The uh, Dr. Murray Bowen is a sort of an academic inspiration of mine. He was a, a doctor who studied how major uh, social systems worked. And he studied cultures and systems, and particularly how uh, anxiety rises and cultures fall for you know, generations. And at the end of last century, he was assessing the American culture, looking at the, the fruit of the sexual revolution and all this kind of stuff. And he, was make, he, he made the observation that that anxiety tends to rise to toxic levels in a broader culture when two things happen. First of all, the, the quantity and speed of change increases. Quantity and speed of change increases. Now, think of what's happened since about 1990 in the World Wide Web, Internet, connected technology. The speed of change is 
Change and the speed of change is both increasing. We cannot keep up with it, right? And there's no end to that, right? That can be good, but it is happening. The other thing he said is, happens is when institutions, organizations that used to absorb that anxiety lose their effectiveness and the confidence of the people. Those two things happen together, then toxicity happens in the culture. Think of where institutions have happened and the public confidence in institutions in the last 50 or 60 years in our culture. The family, government, the church, school system, the legal establishment, all at record low confidence. This may well mean that our culture, the North American culture, is in deep trouble. There's nothing you or I are going to do to stop that necessarily. But what does it need? It needs a people rooted elsewhere. It needs a people when the anxiety is is swirling around and the fear is swirling around to say, actually, I have, we have another source of energy and power and life. That's the very thing Jesus offers us. That's part of the reason we go to the communion table every single week. It's part of the reason we're going right now. Look, I don't know what you got going on in your life. Some of you I do. There's all kinds of pressures, I get it. All kinds of difficulties, I get it. And the temptation is to have our life rooted in and our energy coming out of those things and be circumstantially dependent. And the grand offer of the gospel is Jesus saying, if you abide in me, I will give you life right in the middle of all that. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to come to the table. This is one tangible way that Jesus gives life to us. I'm going to pray, and then I want to invite you to come to...